0: and welcome to The Block, the building, learning, and organizational culture podcast. I'm your host, Heidi Kirby, and on today's episode, we have Dear Heidi number three. On this episode, I'm going to be answering a few questions that I have either heard often in the recent past or heard people discussing a lot or have seen come up a lot. And I'm just going to give you the answer to those questions off the cuff, from my experience and my opinion. So let's get started. The first question is, how do I know what to put in my instructional design portfolio? I can't tell you how many times I personally get asked some form of this question, or just, um, you know, can I put certain things from my teaching career? Or can I put certain things from my graduate education, or from my previous job in my portfolio? What can or can't I include? What types of topics should I be covering? And so to first address this, I want to say what I've said before, I say this a lot, that I think there's a real overemphasis on the instructional design portfolio as something we should be hinging everything on as hiring managers and something we should be hinging our entire career on as instructional designers. And I think that that is a byproduct of all of the boot camps and academies and uh, programs and courses and certifications that are being pushed right now to transitioning teachers is that the portfolio is The portfolio is a product that someone can sell to you, right? Like, hey, you need to make this. Whereas it's a lot harder to say, hey, I'm going to teach you how to have confidence in your instructional design skills so that you can talk to anybody about them and make anything. It's not as easy to market that. And so I think there's been an overemphasis placed on the idea of a portfolio and the idea that you have to develop and create your own website as well, which I think is, is really problematic. I have never needed to build and create and launch an entire website in my career as an instructional designer, even as a manager of instructional designers. And I don't know that that's a common skill for anyone that I've talked to. So I think first of all, we need to pull the importance back on the idea of a portfolio website and look at what the skills are that that website is meant to demonstrate, right? What is the purpose of the instructional design portfolio? And honestly, these are the same kinds of questions you should be asking before you create a learning experience. So what better place to start than with the learning experience that you are creating for a future hiring manager by saying, what is the purpose of this? What am I trying to communicate? Well, I'm trying to communicate a few things, right? I'm trying to communicate that I have the needs analysis skills that I can look at a problem, a training problem, or I can look at a potential learning opportunity and say, hey, I think this is the gap and this is what we can do to fill it. I need to find some way to show that in my portfolio. Whether that be through a narrative that goes with a portfolio piece, a discussion about your process, whatever, that's an important skill. Your design and development skills. What are you able to then go and create? And how long does that take you and how much effort do you put in? And do you know how to use the tools that exist out there to create a learning experience? Whether that be an authoring tool, a video editing, audio editing, graphic design, knowledge management, what have you, you also need to prove that you know how to show the design and development piece. And you need to show that you've put some effort into how you would assess the effectiveness of what you've created. Right? So you need to include how you would hypothetically, if you're not using a real example, if you're creating an example for your portfolio, how you would hypothetically measure the effectiveness of that learning intervention. So if you can successfully communicate that you understand the process of instructional design, the tools that are used to create learning experiences and the ways in which we measure the effectiveness of those learning experiences, that's what you should be putting in your portfolio. Now, okay, (laughs) that's all well and good, but what does that actually look like in practice, right? First of all, I get asked, can I use something from a previous company? That depends. Is it something that is available to the public? Like, do you work in customer education where you could provide a link to a public facing learning center and show off your work? Is it on YouTube? Is it on Wistia? You know, if it's out there for everyone to see already, it shouldn't be a problem for you to share the link to that in your portfolio. But if it's proprietary information, which many times it is, You'll either have to genericize it by pulling out all the logos, pulling out all the proprietary information and provide it as, as, you know, kind of a mock-up of what it would normally be or recreate it, right? Just recreate it with generic info for a fake company called ABC Inc or something like that, right? But you have to remove that proprietary info because a hiring manager is going to look at your portfolio and go, whoa, that person should not be sharing that information. I wouldn't trust them with my company's information, right? The other thing that I get asked is like, well, then can I, if I can't use what I've, you know, used at other workplaces, or I've never worked in this field before, can I use teaching examples or graduate education examples? And I always say, you can but you have to draw the connections. Not all L&D managers come from a teaching background. Not all L&D managers attend graduate education. Anything that is outside of the realm of their normal knowledge, you're going to have to draw those connections as to how is this needs analysis? How does this represent designing and developing a learning experience for a diverse audience? How does the assessment that you use to measure this match up to how it would look in the type of workplace you're going to work in, right? So for instance, I've seen people in their portfolios give like very specific measurements of how they improve test scores for, let's say, this is just completely made up example, ninth grade reading. I improve ninth grade reading test scores 20 points year over year. If I work in corporate, I have no clue what that means. I, I don't even know what the 20 point scale is out of. I don't even know what the acronyms are for the standardized tests in my state. I don't because there are so many of them. I would never know what exactly that stat means. So shift it to a percentage, shift it to something that makes more sense for the hiring manager. I increased the um, achievement scores, let's say year over year, 20%. That is a better way to translate that information, but you still are going to expose that you don't have specific instructional design experience by including things that are from your graduate education or from a previous field. And that's okay, but you just have to realize that that's the case, right? You just have to realize that those are not going to be looked at in the same way as people who have examples of things that they've worked on while they were in corporate for six years, right? And I think it's okay. I think that's fine. Again, you just have to be able to communicate your process, that you understand the foundational skills that are needed. Now, The last situation I get asked about is, okay, so let's say I want to create a hypothetical example. What kind of topic do I pick? And I always just say, think of topics that are universal, right? You can choose soft skills, you can choose hard skills, you can choose something that is, you know, for funsies. But think about things that are like universal, right? Things like first aid, Safety, leadership, customer service. These are the kinds of things that no matter the company, they'll have a basic understanding, and the hiring manager will be able to make, you know, take an objective look at what you've created. So think about those types of things. Think about the kind of companies you're applying for. What are some commonalities? Are they companies that care about sustainability? Can you create some kind of sustainability related course? But the one thing that I will say is that you never, ever want to create a course for funsies for the sake of creating a course for funsies. I am talking about the kind of course that you see out there in the wild that says, here is how to feed a cat. I would never take an e-learning course on how to feed a cat. I have never. And I've successfully cared for four cats in my life. I know how to feed them because I read the back of the bag or I Google, when should I mix wet and dry food? How much should I mix, right? Even my poor cat with kidney problems. I used vet and Google. Do not make an e-learning example course, an entire course on something that should be an email, a job aid, or a meeting. You have to still have the purpose in mind. You have to still have the outcome in mind. You have to still think about those things. That was a lot for just one question, but I get asked these, these specific questions pretty often. So I feel okay about taking that long. All right. Question number two is, how do I deal with a toxic boss who keeps giving me more and more work, doesn't understand how long ID takes, and who keeps expecting me to take orders without any pushback? This is kind of a combination of some Times that different people have reached out to me to complain about toxic bo- bosses or toxic work environments, and just some of the different complaints, right? That the boss continues to overload the person with work, that they don't understand instructional design, or they don't understand why something is taking so long. Or that they expect the person to just take orders without doing any kind of needs analysis or anything like that. Which, again, continues to go back to that the boss doesn't really understand instructional design and just wants stuff to get done. So, there's a couple things here. First of all, I know I've talked a lot about psychological safety and toxic workplaces in the past... But the truth of the matter is someone hired that toxic boss, right? If they are truly toxic. If you do try to say, hey, I've had enough. Hey, I need help. Hey, I know this is taking a really long time, but here's why. I'd love some support. If you are are really honestly, honestly and openly trying to communicate with your boss and they continue to be toxic, there's really not much that you can do, right? There's really y- you have to make a decision and you have to decide and I've had to make this decision and it's really hard. And it's it's not the same for everyone and it depends on so many things. It depends on what you can afford, if you can leave your job, if you can leave your job without another job lined up, if you are the primary person who holds the health insurance policy for your family, if you are the primary breadwinner for your family, if you have experienced mental health problems in the past or not, if you are, you know, there's so many things that go into this decision, but you have to make a choice about where your breaking point is and you have to really honor that boundary, right? You have to really tell yourself, okay, I am going to go and I'm going to try to have this conversation with my boss. And if they are not receptive, and if they do not give me another week on this project without making my life hell, I'm going to start looking for new jobs. Or maybe it's a lot more dire, right? Maybe it's like, if HR doesn't talk to my boss, I'm going to quit. And it may be, but you have to really look at that situation and you have to decide for yourself where your, where your breaking point is, where your boundary is. But here's the other thing. I think sometimes we are disillusioned a little bit. I think there's this idea on social media, especially for people who aren't in instructional design yet, that it is a land of rainbows and unicorns where you get to be creative and make cool Jeopardy games for new hires. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I just had to do it. That you'll get to put pink and purple glitter on everything you touch. And it's hardly ever that way in real life. You don't really get to have full creative license, especially if you're working for a company that already has branding in place. You probably aren't going to get to work on all the fun, cool projects that you imagined working on. It's probably going to be a lot of compliance, safety, technical stuff, some random things that you never thought you needed to know. (laughs) I learned more about the Medicare system in my early 20s than anyone my age needed to know. But I think there's a little bit of that as well, that we need to understand that it's not just them or me. It's also my expectations of what this job would be. And it's important to have realistic expectations because you could leave and experience the same thing somewhere else. That's happened to me that's happened to me where I felt like I was an order taker. So I went to a different place and I was expected to be an order taker again. That's hard, but you know, you have to, again, find, find what you're willing to deal with. And if you're, you insist that you are the one that has to do needs analysis, you're going to have to find that out. You're going to start learning too. What kinds of questions you can ask in an interview that's going to let you know who is going to be toxic to you and who isn't. It can be really hard because during the job interview, everyone's putting their best foot forward, even the most toxic of bosses. I have had people who've turned out to be darn near sociopaths act like Mr. Rogers in job interviews, (laughs) but seriously... So long story long, again, figure out why you're upset, figure out the, the disconnect. What is it that you want to do that you can't, and then figure out where that boundary is. What are you going to try to do to improve that? And where's the line for you? And then, you know, have that conversation, have that tough conversation with your boss. And if it still doesn't improve, then you may have to realize that you can't stay there. Okay. Question number three. How do I get my team to work more quickly and efficiently through the ID process? This is a question about scalability and about how long it takes to do things sometimes in instructional design. Now, first of all, I have a very strong opinion that some of the tools that we use in instructional design are super wasteful in terms of time. That we should not be spending as much time as we are finagling with JavaScript. I'll just leave it at that. You, you, if you know, you know. And that there are much better tools out there used by other cross-functional teams that we can adopt and we can use to move quickly, right? Right? We don't necessarily need an LMS, depending on the needs of our organization. Could we instead have our product team build a website? Could we instead just have a central repository where we store things on an intranet? Could we instead do something else altogether, right? Have a, I don't know, have a Discord, (laughs) have a Slack just for all of our, our materials confluence, whatever. Can we just collect them somewhere else? Can we use something different to create media, to create content? Can we just hire a graphic designer on our team to create our visual graphics? Can we just use the same tools that marketing is using for editing video to put quick videos together and have them create some of the filler Are there ways that we can, by looking at what other people are doing, improve our own process? And I think the answer is yes. I think it takes some creativity to take a step back and look at our own processes and look at our own content management and our own system and how we're working together as a team, what the different strengths of our team members are. But I think it's worth it to do that every so often so that we can look for those. It's a needs analysis of our own team, really, truly. And all we're doing is we're looking for those gaps. And we're figuring out what the best way is to fill them. It's kind of our thing. (laughs) But I also think that we need to have a process. I think that's one of the biggest things. A lot of times, I didn't really have a charted process when I was working in instructional design. And I think if I had something that was a little bit more concrete and better laid out, that I probably would have kept to a few more deadlines. So I think we need to outline that process a little bit better. And I also think we just need to focus on the outcomes. Because I think The other thing that happens is we get too distracted and we get too caught up on making something sexy or funny or interesting and we don't spend enough time thinking about what do we need this person to do, right? We are supposed to be helping people do their jobs better, right? Would you agree that that's generally our purpose? is to help people learn and by helping them learn help them to do their job better quickly and more efficiently so why <laughs> bring it full circle you ready so why are we creating a full e-learning on how to feed a cat when we work for a veterinary office when we could just put a poster on the wall Why are we creating a step-by-step guide for how not to get your fingers smashed in a machine and then putting it to music in Beyond and making all of the guys come off the floor to watch it when we could just make a picture and post it at the machine? We have to remember the purpose, right? We have to remember what it is that we're trying to do and what we're trying to accomplish. And I think that that alone can help us work quickly and more efficiently, especially when we take the time to keep on expressing that to our SMEs and our stakeholders. Hey, remember, these are our outcomes. Are we still working towards those? Are we still making the best effort that we can To check these boxes because it reminds us, but it also reminds our SMEs who love to live in the weeds to stay out of the weeds and focus on the outcome. And so again, to just quickly recap, we have to have a process. We have to have a process. It has to be outlined and we have to take a step back and be willing to look at that process to be willing to look at our team and how the team is made up. Do they all have different strengths? Should we leverage those? Should we have them each working on a different part of the project? Do they all have similar strengths? Do we need to, as a group, upskill somewhere? These are the kinds of things to look at. And then finally, if we focus on the outcomes, if we focus on only what is the most useful to our audience, delivering things in the most useful way, sharing the information in the most useful way, not sharing extra information for the heck of it, not making our learners do things for the heck of it. That's going to help us work more quickly and more efficiently. Thanks again for joining me on the blog. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and review us on your favorite podcast platform. I hope you'll tune in again soon.